I'll, I'll pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we commence our Jesus is mission and your mission or task is to invite people to complete that sentence, Jesus is what goes in the blank. To be interested in people's opinions, to be ready to give your own whenever you get the chance and good on you if you're having a go wearing, bearing the name of Jesus. I was so encouraged by that video from Emma that, well, we struggled to watch it last Sunday with the tech problems, but you might have seen it on the website uh, during the e-news during the week. The delivery man came to her house when she was wearing it at home and said, Jesus is rubbish. And when she asked why, he actually had no real explanation, just the bluster of repeating himself. But for Christians reading Luke, as many of us are doing, one obvious answer is that Jesus is the Christ. There's not a bit of mystery really as Luke unfolds his biography of Jesus. In Reg's passage a fortnight ago, the famous Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, the shepherds visit the baby Jesus in the manger and Luke 2 verse 11 records the angel saying, today in the town of David a saviour has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord or in the new NIV, the Messiah, the Lord. Christ in the Greek language equals Messiah in the Hebrew. And so the angel had an answer for what goes in the blank. Likewise, last week in Luke 4 with Jesus as an adult, he got to preach in his hometown synagogue and picked Isaiah 61. It began by saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me and the quote there in Luke 4.18 could easily say because he has Christed me to preach good news because friends Christ is not his surname it does not say on Jesus chariot driver's license Liz could you pass that one on to Liam to see if it passes his standards uh It does not say first name Jesus, last name Christ. No, it's a title. The title Christ means anointed one. And Jesus said he fulfilled the spirit anointed, spirit Christed task as he began to preach good news. Which brings me, jumping ahead to chapter 9, to today's passage. Uh, Jesus does his opinion poll thing in verses 18 to 19. Who do the crowd say I am? And then the surprise is not so much that Peter says in verse 20, you are God's Christ or God's Messiah. I mean, what took you so long, Peter? Uh, People have been coming to suspect this ever since he started handing out God's forgiveness, doing miracles. We read as knew it with the shepherds from chapter 2. The surprise is, why the silence? If Peter got this right then why in verse 21 does Jesus strictly warn them not to tell this to anyone? In fact, it's not the first time for this theme. Right back in Luke chapter 4.41, after he cast out demons, the demons shouted at Jesus as they left their human victims, you are the son of God. And Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. The text says, quote, because they knew he was 
the Messiah slash Christ? Why the silence? We try to answer that question today. And to get our context, we pay attention to the section just before that shows Jesus meeting our needs, Jesus meeting human needs. It comes after a very busy season of ministry in Luke chapter 19, 9 verse 10. Uh, Jesus tried to grab a chance to rest and refresh with his disciples and verse 11 says the crowd learned about it and followed him. And despite, and I can tell you from personal experience, there's very real disappointment at losing a day off, there's no irritation from Jesus. End of verse 11, he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Jesus meets human needs. They needed spiritual teaching and they needed practical care. Uh, Gospel preaching always goes, it should, with caring for the needy. It did with Jesus. Now, mind you, Jesus never allowed the meeting of practical needs to block him from moving on into the next town where he also needed to preach God's eternal kingdom. But wherever he went, I can't recall any occasion when he turned someone away in need. And then you get the only miracle, that is apart from his own resurrection, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The feeding of the 5,000. In fact, more than 5,000 since that's just the count of the men and Matthew 14 verse 21 says there were women and children too. But look with me here to verse 12. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. I mean, personally, I think they should have been worried about a run of 5,000 people on the local IGA. I mean, we know what happens with toilet paper and sanitizer. But one of the other Gospels showed they, they knew they couldn't afford to cater for the crowd. Yet Jesus puts the pressure back on them. Verse 13, he replied, you give them something to eat? They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all the crowd. Disciples know that sharing their meagre supplies won't help and so Jesus has to sort it out. Uh, Second part of verse 14, he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They must have been wondering what was going to happen but the disciples, verse 15, did so and everyone sat down taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them And he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Friends, Jesus meets human need. But it's more, isn't it? Even more really because it's an echo, I think, of God feeding Moses and the Israelites stuck in the desert with quail and the manna, that is the bread from heaven, Here's what Professor Darrell Bock writes in his commentary. The miracle has a rich tapestry of fundamental themes that weave through Jesus' ministry, compassion, control over creation and the ability to make provisions for life. In a sense, this is a cameo portrait of God's grace 
and the offer of his presence at a table where he provides for his children. And so really we're seeing a foretaste of the messianic banquet, the great banquet of the Christ. And that points to why Jesus wanted to damp down the enthusiasm. In fact, the version of this event in John's Gospel, chapter 6, shows the crowd getting so excited over Jesus being some great prophet to come that he knew, uh, I'm quoting John 6.16, that they intended to come and make him king by force. So he withdrew again. That's the thing. The expectations of the Christ or Messiah to come tended to be about force, very military and political. It kind of reminds me of Trump's slogans, make America great again. No, the Christ would make Israel great again and he would beat up the Romans. No. That leads to the second point actually where Jesus immediately said the Christ must suffer first. Uh, Look at verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. When in verse 20 Peter correctly identifies Jesus as Christ, Jesus immediately follows up by saying, yes but that means a cross for me. He needs to correct their misunderstanding of what the Christ had to do. That's why he calls for silence. So he can teach them that he must do the Christ thing God's way. Last Sunday night I uh, was preaching on the Trinity, the oneness of the three and I was a bit hyped up afterwards and when I got home I did an unwise thing. Instead of going to bed I sat down with the late Sunday movie Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. Now, it was a pretty good movie. In fact, I even classify it as kind of visual crime fiction. Eastwood begins as a racist retired soldier, uh, fought in Korea and I think Indochina, and he eventually, uh, surprisingly, befriends and helps his new next-door neighbours from Laos. Uh, When the neighbour's sister is viciously assaulted... The young man next door wants Eastwood to help get revenge on the gang. But Eastwood does not want his promising young migrant neighbour to go down the route of violence. He knows, from personal experience, that's the wrong way to win. And so he asks his neighbour over on the surface to talk tactics for their campaign and uh, takes him down to the basement to show him the gun. And then he locks him in the basement so he can't come with Eastwood because Eastwood is going to win the right way. And to cut a long story short, Eastwood goes to the gang house and incites the gang members to come out fully armed and in full view of all the quaking neighbours, Eastwood incites the gang to shoot him though he is in fact unarmed. And they kill him with their machine guns in full view and the police are called and arrest them and they're all locked away for murder. And so the young woman is avenged and the neighbourhood is made safe 
rather than shoot them, Eastwood saves his neighbours by getting the gang to shoot him. Now, kind of, I have to say, reminded me of what Jesus promised to do here. He will win the right way, without force. Except, of course, Clint Eastwood was a damaged soldier, rightly ashamed of having killed non-combatants in war, realising he'd been a racist and he was a very hard man to get along with. And, in fact, he already knew he was dying from lung cancer. Whereas Jesus, of course, was a younger man who only ever used his power to help and serve others. Eastwood sacrificed himself in some kind of self-redemptive act as a guilty man, trying to save his, well, relatively innocent neighbours. Jesus died as a perfectly innocent man to bring redemption to the guilty, to bring the forgiveness. Remember he promised to any sinner, uh, like back in Luke 5.24, and that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralysed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And notice here in verse 22, the little word must. Repeated twice, Jesus must suffer. And he must be killed, little word pointing to divine necessity. The crucifixion, friends, is no accident. Yes, suffering is undesirable and from a human point of view, the cross was an obscene miscarriage of justice, executing an innocent man. The the humans who yelled for it, so guilty. But it was God's plan There was no other way to forgive sins and yet to maintain justice than by giving up his one and only son to bear justice on the cross, paying for the sins of others, the guilty ones. Christ came not as a military saviour. No, the Christ must suffer. And then thirdly in this passage, we see there can be no real Christians without a cross. Uh, The late Australian scholar Leon Morris wrote that in recognising here Jesus is the Christ, it's immediately followed not only by teaching that it means a cross for the Christ, but it also means a cross for the Christians, Christians, who follow him. Uh, Look at verse 23. And he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And in fact, surprisingly, that verse 23 is the first actual mention of a cross in Luke. The verses before were just suffering. That would have been shocking to Jesus' followers because they knew if they saw someone carrying a cross... Then person was on a one-way journey. They weren't coming back from a Roman execution. And Jesus says to them all, do you see? All. To them all. Whoever wants to follow him, carry a cross. Of course, Jesus' suffering was unique. He gave his life as a ransom for many. 
He was atoning for the sins of the world. We could not even atone for our own sins. And so we do not confuse his unique suffering for our personal crosses. And in fact, Jesus, uh, Luke hints that normally our crosses are not literal. He's hinting at that by saying you've got to do it daily. As I said, you only died once on a Roman cross. You couldn't do it again daily. And so it's an image of suffering to go alongside the call to self-denial, which tells us there can be nothing self-indulgent, nothing soft about following Christ. And it's why the decision needs... Can you remember the date of your conversion? Lovely if you can. Some of us grew up in Christian being taught from a young age and can't remember the date. It doesn't matter because the decision needs to be remade day after day. Verses 24 to 6, spell it out. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. There is an American megachurch pastor, perhaps just about the biggest church in North America, whose most popular book, it's been repeatedly in the Curon catalogue, it was called Your Best Life Now. That kind of health and wealth prosperity gospel just does not seem to line up with what Jesus says here for his followers in these verses. Now sometimes Jesus' followers need to choose family over promotion. but sometimes they must risk family antagonism by prioritising the body of Christ, the church. Sometimes they must choose going to the mission field instead of a normal career. I was told as a young man, can't you serve God as a, a lawyer or a doctor, Sandy? Sometimes they must choose ethical loyalty to Jesus over moral compromise for their job security. Sometimes they must choose lifestyle sacrifice over material comforts. You try to save those things for yourself, keep them for yourself, for your best life now and you may lose the lot. And in fact, of course, sometimes Christians must endure rejection, mockery, persecution, arrest and occasionally even literal death, out of loyalty to Christ rather than being ashamed of Jesus and his words. Did you notice that in verse 26? Jesus and the words of Jesus go together. You can't pretend to be loyal to Jesus. I believe in Jesus if you ignore the words of Jesus. Verse 26, it's sobering. It means that Jesus will not accept anyone into the glory of the new creation who has not wanted to accept him into their lives now. So true Christianity is not about ticking a box on the census. Uh, It's not even just about coming to church on Sundays. 
This section says it's about following Jesus daily. Denying the idea that you get to decide how you lead your life because Jesus has become your leader, not you, you're a follower. He's the most important person in your world now. And so Luke 9 really is a major turning point in the Gospel. Up to this point, uh, it's all about people grappling with who Jesus is. Now I often say chapter 9 is like the big song in a musical that comes just before intermission. Now we know Jesus is the Christ. When the curtain goes up in the second half, we'll see how the Christ must suffer. But here are my conclusions from today. There's a personal one and one for us together. The personal conclusion is, again, to say being a Christian is not just knowing something about Jesus. Uh, The crowds knew something about him. They were willing to say Jesus belonged in a religious hall of fame. Jesus was not satisfied with those second-hand opinions because he was far more than a good moral teacher or a great prophet, true though those things are. So he challenged his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's about knowing Jesus personally for who he truly is. What about you? Who do you say Jesus is, have you answered that question personally? And have you determined that he really is even worth losing your life over? Because friends, Jesus is not just like Buddha or Muhammad or Karl Marx. None of them died for your sins and none of them rose from the grave. But Jesus knew he must suffer and die and he did it for people like you. And so you must put your trust in Christ personally. You know, your husband or your wife can't do it for you. Your mum or your dad could not do it for you personally, much as they'd love it. Your good friend at church can't phone it in for you. Only you can personally trust Christ with your life. Please tell us on the connection card if you want to discuss this more with a member of the church pastoral staff. And just briefly for the corporate application, uh, Professor Bock made the point in the first section of the passage that Jesus met human need through the disciples. Uh, Even though they were weak and they could not find or afford the food needed in a deserted place, he still asked them to be involved in the serving up of what He provided. He fed the 5,000 together with his disciples where they achieved much more than they expected to their surprise. The compassionate example of Jesus as healer and provider has always motivated Christians to meet human need. So, for example, Rodney Stark, the Professor of Social Sciences at Baylor University, in his book says Christianity's capacity for meeting chronic human problems played a major role in its rise and spread in the ancient Western world. For example, this quote stood out to me this week. To cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered 
effective nursing services. In that day, you kept to yourself or you ran for the hills, but not the Christians. And that such care happens typically now in the Western world, has flown in large measure from the gospel's transforming effect. And so in times of coronavirus fears, there are many ways beyond the miraculous for providing for human need. Christians take someone a meal or do their shopping, visit the sick or if you can't because of isolation, phone them regularly. Listen to the traumatised and pray with the anxious. And perhaps above all, encourage hope in the Saviour, Christ, who suffered for us.